As we move into Daniel chapter 10, we are going to get an inside look at spiritual warfare and specifically the spirit world and how it works. And there are principalities and there are powers and there are battles going on behind the scenes. An intriguing look into spiritual warfare today on Walk in Truth. You're listening to the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now, here's Pastor Michael. Whatever you may be going through and maybe going on in your life tonight, be of good cheer. It could get worse. <laughs> right? Just compare yourself to Daniel, and I think it will hearten you that uh, we have a lot of good things to celebrate. Now, what was going on at this time is that there was a movement of captives returning to the Holy Land, to Israel. This is recorded in the book of Ezra, and I, I think it's important that you see this, so go ahead and find Ezra. You gotta go back uh, before the Psalms, right before the book of Nehemiah, and I wanna sh just show you the, some of the timelines and things that are going on so you can see the battle within the battle. This is Ezra 1, verse one, Ezra 1, Verse one, now it says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now we saw it was the third year in Daniel 10, one, Ezra 1, one says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, word of the Lord, Ezra 1, one, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, they're a world empire at this point, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now you all know that in 586 BC, in the last wave of the besieging of the land of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the temple, and it was laid in rubble and it laid there in rubble for 70 years. Ezra returned along with Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and we'll look at that in a moment, and began to address what was in rubble. Uh, 50,000 Israelites returned from Babylon, approximately, flip over to Ezra 2, take a look. You can see, now these, verse one, are the people of the province who came out of the captivity of the exiles, Ezra 2.1, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem, to Judah, each to his city. Now, I am not going to read this list to you, and I'm sure you're all very grateful for it. But if you scan it really quick in your Bible, notice that you have names and numbers. And if you go down in the section uh, and you total up, uh, just you know, go, go on down to verse 40, you got Levites listed there, singers, sons of Asaph, you got 128 listed there. You've got in verse 42, gatekeepers, you've got more and more numbers and so forth. If you skip down all the way to verse 65, servants are listed there, 7,337. Uh, if you combine that with the whole assembly numbered at 42,360 in verse 64 of Ezra 2, you can see how we are getting close to a number of 50,000. And so this is the number of people that returned after the captivity. 
but they return to a state of rubble. And the bigger sad disappointment in someone like Daniel's heart and mind, being close to 90, a side note, he never went back. He did not return to the land that he loved. So his prayer and his agonizing and his desire to understand was not for him. It was for his people. And for some of you who are a little older in this room, and maybe for some of you, you've passed the midway point of your life. When, when that happens, you start to think in bigger terms of just your own lifetime. You start to think about children and grandchildren and what they will inherit and how well you've stewarded what God entrusted to you. How well you've stewarded the heritage of a country and of, of course the heritage of a call. For me as a pastor um, and a dad, and of course as a husband, things uh, like stewardship mean a lot to me. And so I, I begin to think in those terms that I'm not, I'm not just acting and praying for myself when I have to take a stand on an issue or uh, you know, make sure my voice is heard in terms of the clarity of the word of God or, or make a call to the church. It, it's bigger than just an individual. And I, and I want you guys to see that for Daniel, that's what it was. He wasn't doing this for himself. He, he didn't go back. He was almost 90. He may have been too feeble, but he still believed that he could fight through prayer. And some of you, you know, you're, you're at a point in your life where maybe you, you feel like, well, I'm a, I'm a little out of the, uh, the war in the sense that maybe I'm not on the front lines anymore, but you can still battle in prayer and your battle can be in the heavenlies, if you will, fighting the good fight of faith for others who may have to do the work in the future. You could think of maybe perhaps Daniel praying for guys like Nehemiah and Ezra who were younger at this time and saying, Lord, would you strengthen them to finish well? Um, so th those are things that we need to think about as, we, as time goes by. In chapter four, you get an idea of the battle. It says in verse three of Ezra four, but Zerubbabel, and Joshua, or Joshua, the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord a God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Uh, what happened, and this is inevitable when you're doing the work of God, there was opposition. The people of the land, namely here the Samaritans, began to oppose the real rebuilding project of the temple. They would prefer it be in rubble. And so notice what happened. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, these 50,000 or so that returned, and frightened them from building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what we know from other scriptures is that when this happened, the king got somewhat annoyed about the conflict and the building project to rebuild the temple stalled for 16 years. The work was put on hold because of pressure, fear tactics, and you name it. And this wouldn't be the first time that the enemy used fear and discouragement and distraction to stall out the work of God or to stall out something that God's called you or me to. Now, I'll tell you this, that even with the 16 years stall out, it was still, I think in 515 BC, 
that the temple was uh, re-erected and rededicated. If you go from 586 to 515, that's around what? 70 years. And so another 70 years from the destruction in 586 to the rededication of the temple in 515. So God even used the, de- the delay to be divine. So sometimes we think, oh man, it's been this many years since I've, you know, maybe I, I got distracted or I got off track or whatever. The Lord can even use those delays for his purposes. And so um, spiritual warfare was happening and I want you to see around the rebuilding of the temple through very human means. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, but it sure seems like we wrestle against flesh and blood, which just means people. And so sometimes when I read Paul's uh, words that we don't wrestle against people, I wanna say, Paul, are you sure? (laughs) Because people certainly seem to be the problem in most instances. But people are often pawns in satanic conception. Not every time, not behind every tree, not in every circumstance. But in these big things, the attempt to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, you could be assured that the devil did not want that to happen and that he was gleeful that it laid in rubble for 70 years. Because remember, his target sites have been leveled against the people of Israel really from the beginning. So this is what we have. Now in that delay time, there's a scripture in the book of Haggai, which is right before Zechariah, towards the end of the Old Testament, and Pastor Michael is already realizing that this will be a two-part message, so don't, don't get too nervous, because some of you are saying, there's like 20-something verses, and he, he's done one verse. Oh Lord, help him. <laughs> I feel you. All right? But we're not gonna do the whole chapter tonight, so be a good cheer. Just find Haggai, because I'm even struggling to find it up here. Haggai, chapter one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies desolate? This house, the temple, lies desolate. Verse five. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to be put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, someone might ask. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs Uh, to his own house. Now this is during that 16 year lapse where the people decided that they would just be about their own business instead of God's business. And it's very easy to do in a world like ours to lose sight that the Bible says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be what? Will be added to you. 
and we get distracted. And there, look, there's a lot. Of- You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment, but first, is it proper for Christians to celebrate Christmas? The Christmas season can appear to be a conflict of messages, images, and sentiments. The Origins of Christmas DVD will address frequently asked questions such as, do we know Jesus' actual birth date? Did the early church celebrate the birthday of Jesus? Did Christians really steal Christmas from a pagan holiday? The Origins of Christmas DVD wraps up with a practical answer to one final question. Is it proper for Christians today to celebrate Christmas? And if so, how? Get your copy of the Origins of Christmas DVD today when you visit walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance right here on Walk in Truth. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies desolate? This house, the temple, lies desolate. Verse five. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to be put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, someone might ask. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs uh, to his own house. Now this is during that 16 year lapse where the people decided that they would just be about their own business instead of God's business. And it's very easy to do in a world like ours to lose sight that the Bible says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be what? They'll be added to you. And we get distracted and look, there's a lot of things to distract us. But oftentimes, we'd have to say there's been periods of the church and perhaps it's true today, I'll let you make your own uh, conclusion, that the church can often be categorized as pitiful. And I'm sorry to say it, And I count myself among that group that oftentimes there's no other word than pitiful, lethargic. Um, Everything else comes first and the things of God suffer. There's been periods of time when the church has been revived and whenever we talk about revival, we're talking about the church, not the world, the church. And when the church wakes up and gets busy, good things happen. And I I do pray that we're on uh, the cusp of a revival in this country. Turn to the next book to your right. This is Zechariah 3, and it gives you this picture of this warfare that's going on with the leaders of the nation of Israel at this time when you have this backdrop. Zechariah 3, look at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, who would represent the nation here as the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Zechariah 3.1, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Zechariah 3.2, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire or plucked from the captivity, if you will? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy or befouled garments standing before the angel. This is strong language. Literally, it could be fouled with excrement. 
And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Keep in mind he's the high priest. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord, most would see Jesus here standing by. The turban, if you turn back to the book of Daniel, had this writing on it. It would say holiness to the Lord. And the high priest uh, on the day of atonement and so forth would have to be acceptable, prepared himself to make atonement for the sins of the nation. You would imagine in this picture, the nation had a lot to ask God to forgive them for, amen? (laughs) 70 years of captivity, not honoring the Sabbath, all their idolatry, and of the people that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, 500 miles, it was a very small segment of the nation. Most people had become comfortable in Babylon. So 50,000 people returning to the homeland or the promised land was a very small percentage of those who could have gone. But those who could have gone didn't go. Able-bodied people did not return. They did not take up the the, uh, task of rebuilding the house of the Lord because they had become comfortable in Babylon. I'll let you chew on that one, but I think you can see the application there. In those days, Daniel says, verse two, Daniel 10, two, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. 21 days, Daniel was mourning. Over what? Well, I think over the condition of the nation of Israel, the fact that so few people had returned, and I think also because Daniel was longing that the work would be done, but he was sensing the spiritual warfare and the overall lethargy of his own people. So we've, get, we've gotten the backdrop there in uh, the book of Ezra and so forth. Daniel says, during this time of mourning, I did not eat, verse three, any tasty food. I ate no choice food, NIV, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all or anoint myself until the entire three weeks were completed. Daniel went on a 21-day fast. It would seem that the fast maybe went back to what he did in chapter one. And just a side note, Daniel's diet in chapter one of vegetables and water was not his permanent diet. And some of you are saying, praise the Lord. Because if this dude ate vegetables and drank water his whole life, dare to be a Daniel, you can forget about that. He didn't. Verse three implies that his diet would include meat and wine, which was very common to a a Jewish uh, menu. But during this fast time, he did not. He ate bland food. I don't know exactly everything included there, but you know, bland food is is bland. (laughs) Have you ever gone on one of those diets where um, you've decided to eat oatmeal and you decided you're only gonna sweeten it with natural ingredients. Anybody ever tried that before? If you throw a banana in there, it may help. But I have to tell you, the prepackaged oatmeal that's maple spice or cinnamon apple, oh baby. When you've had that and then you try to go with the plain oatmeal with maybe a banana in it, it ain't happening. I would be mourning for 21 days if I had 
eat that food. Now, Daniel is fasting because he's burdened. I touched on this in an earlier chapter, but I just would say, if you are burdened over something happening, a decision, there's no specific model to how you should do this, but you could restrict your diet, you could skip a meal and use that time to pray instead of eating, you could take that money that you might have spent on lunch and give it to the work of the Lord. There's a number of ways that you could fast before the Lord. Just make sure when you fast, it's ultimately for spiritual and not physical reasons. I'm fasting so I can lose 20 pounds. <laughs> and I hope I get some spiritual bennies from it too. No, no, no. Let the spiritual drive your fast, okay? It, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man or woman that defiles them. So whether I'm no, not the worse or the better if I eat or don't eat, if I, if I partake of certain things, of course, within biblical limits or don't partake, I'm neither the worse or the better in terms of my standing before God. What God cares about is right here. He cares about that my heart drives, if I fast, it should be driven by a spiritual um, sense in my heart from the Lord, amen? That's what should drive a fast. The details of it, um, you can do it between you and the Lord. But I, I would get wisdom and counsel if you are considering a fast and you haven't done it before, or if you have blood sugar issues or whatever, talk to somebody, feel free to talk to one of the pastors and we would ha be happy to talk to you. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, that's the first month of the religious calendar of Israel, the month of Nisan, which I believe is the month of Abib in Exodus, which is the first religious month wherein the Passover is celebrated, okay? So the first month you could write down is the month of Nisan, that's the Babylonian name for it, I think it's Abib in Hebrew. While I was by the bank of the great river that is the Tigris. You have the Tigris and Euphrates, here's the Tigris, and it's the 24th day of the month. Now if you recall, the Passover in the month of Nisan or Abib starts on the 10th, and uh, I'm, I'm doing this from memory now, but I, I think it's uh, moving from the 10th on there, and the major uh, Passover I think uh, would end on the 14th day, so you guys can check me on that. So we have 10 days from the time of the Passover. Now, what was the time of the Passover celebrating for Israel? The time when they were released from what? Egyptian bondage. And God said, okay, you're gonna, you're gonna do the unleavened bread thing and you're gonna sacrifice the lamb at twilight and you're gonna go out. And the Passover became a regular celebration of the Jewish people. Isn't it interesting that all of this is happening in the month of the Passover? Jesus died on the weekend of the Passover. This is all interconnected. And so if you want more on this, you can read Leviticus 23, verses one through 14, where in the month of Nisan, the Jews celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Passover the week before, what do you do? You sweep out the leaven out of your house was a picture of sin. You clean out the house, you do the spring cleaning. You get out all the leaven because a little leaven leavens what? 
the whole lump of dough. You can look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. We could say it this way, one bad apple <laughs> can spoil the whole bunch. So during the Passover, the Jews sweep out the house. They cleanse it to prepare themselves for the celebration of God's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. So it is interesting that this is what's happening. Now Daniel lifts up his eyes and suddenly, verse five, he says, I looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure uh, gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished brown, bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a tumult or the sound of a stadium. Is it proper for Christians to celebrate Christmas? The Christmas season can appear to be a conflict of messages, images, and sentiments. The Origins of Christmas DVD will address frequently asked questions such as, do we know Jesus' actual birth date? Did the early church celebrate the birthday of Jesus? Did Christians really steal Christmas from a pagan holiday? The Origins of Christmas DVD wraps up with a practical answer to one final question. Is it proper for Christians today to celebrate Christmas? And if so, how? Get your copy of the Origins of Christmas DVD today when you visit walkintruth.com. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.